yesterday when I read today's gospel, his last sentence made me a little curious. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the othermost farthing. The question I had was, what was the value of one farthing? How much would that be compared to today's US dollar? I learned that in the traditional English monetary system, one pound sterling was 960 farthings. So a farthing was one-fourth of a penny. A silver farthing weighed about 0.012345 ounces and would cost about 31 US cents as of yesterday's silver market price. Granted, if you wanted to buy a 16th or 17th century silver farthing now, you'd have to pay at least $100 for it, but that's beside the point. Although the Roman quadrants that Jesus spoke of in the original text of today's gospel contained about five times more silver than an English farthing, the point of his words is that it was a coin of very little value. So what is Jesus telling us with this sentence? Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the othermost farthing. Jesus makes us understand that if we want to rely on our own righteousness before God and think that we can offer him some kind of compensation for our sins, then we are completely on the wrong path. We have not the slightest chance of presenting ourselves clean and blameless before God. For in the end, the last farthings we have to pay are not only our every deed and word, but also our every thought. And who among us could honestly say that all his or her thoughts have always been pure and good. At least God, in his word, tells us something else. The imagination of man's heart, here it is worth giving credit to equality and at, and of woman's heart, is evil from his and her youth. All right, so what are our options? Let's see what Jesus says. We must stop hurting people, wishing them harm, and even thinking badly of them. We must forgive people, and if we ourselves have done something wrong to someone, 
we must seek reconciliation with them. These are not works by which we can earn God's grace and mercy. These are the actions and attitude that show that we understand we have nothing to rely on but God's grace and mercy. We live in a fallen world where law and order are essential. But even in this fallen world, we should understand that far better than external, forcefully imposed and controlled law and order would be a law and order that is written in the hearts of people, that they would follow not against their will, but willingly and with joy. Our righteousness should not be the sophistry of the scribes or the legalism and straining the law of the Pharisees. The only true righteousness is the righteousness of God. Jesus speaks of the righteousness of God at the end of this fifth chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel and says, He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Humanly speaking, this may seem downright unfair. How can God bless alike both the good and the evil? Does God not care at all whether we are good or bad? Of course he cares. But whether someone is good or evil cannot change the nature of God. And since God is love, his love for all people can't be changed. If God does not want us to think bad of anyone, wish harm to someone or hurt someone, then it is self-evident that God also does not think bad of anyone and does not want to hurt or harm anyone. Yes, I admit that it's hard for me too to understand and accept this, but that's how it is. However, I believe that if we think about it, we will understand that it would, be, it would not be possible otherwise. Let's consider our own relationships with the people closest to us. Just as we expect understanding and forgiveness from them, even when we have done something wrong, hopefully we ourselves are also ready to forgive them and always offer to those we love a new opportunity to solve problems and correct errors. If even we are able to do this, how could we think that God is less good 
and generous than us. I recently saw a short video clip of two different people ending a phone call. One of them ended the call with, I love you, talk to you soon. And after hanging up said, oh, I hate her. (laughs) The second one ended shouting, I hate you, hung up the phone and said, oh, how much I love her. Which one? Would you rather welcome as your friend? Or should we ask a completely different question? Which of the two would need us more as a friend? The one who, despite harsh words, has love in his heart? Or the one who is kind in front of your eyes, but would curse you behind your back? We all know which of the two is actually the nicer person. But in order to live in divine righteousness, we should be able to care for both of them and try to do everything possible so that both of them could learn what true love is and how to live it. It may seem naive, and probably sometimes it is naive, Of course, we have to realize that we cannot make all people good, no matter how much we love them. After all, God loves everyone with a perfect love, but nevertheless, not all people become good. But just as God's nature is not changed by how people feel about him, and how they respond to his love. So we must strive to love regardless of whether our love produces love in return or not. We must not allow evil to conquer us, but overcome it with good. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Such a righteousness is not reasonable even from a human perspective, let alone how God sees it. For God has given us both eyes and teeth as well as everything else and asks nothing in return but that we use all that he has given to us to do good according to our own original nature. The Apostle Paul says in today's epistle that we have died with Christ and have been raised from the dead with him so that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This newness of life is nothing else than trying to live without sin, at the same time being merciful to our fellow sinners, as God is merciful to us. When I took the shuttle to the airport in New Jersey yesterday, there was an Indian family 
who had stayed in the same poor and dirty hotel I had stayed. A grandmother, grandfather, their daughter, and her four or five-year-old granddaughter, so theirs granddaughter. They were tired. Their faces were serious. Probably their flight, like mine, had been cancelled and delayed by a day. Suddenly, the little girl said something to her mother in their language I didn't understand. I couldn't understand what she said, but her mother smiled at it. The girl was happy and continued in English, I'm the only one who can make you smile. I looked at them and said to the girl, you should do this more often. Your mom has a beautiful smile. Now they were all smiling, nay, laughing. And I believe their trip, thenceforth, didn't appear to them so arduous and hopeless as before. Of course, such small, pleasant incidents do not eliminate all evil from the world, but they give us hope. And they show us that we don't have to complain all the time about how bad the things are around us, but rather do something, even if it's something small, to make life a little brighter and happier. Note that God has not only done and will do not only great things, but also small things, even tiny ones. In fact, it doesn't matter to him because compared to him, even the greatest creatures are tiny. How good it is to know that God cares for us, the tiny ones, so much that he has given his only begotten son as our redemption. And believe me, just as that little Indian girl made her tired and travel-weary mother smile, so we make our Heavenly Father smile when we look up to him and tell him that we love him and we love all his beloved children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.